I can almost get shivers up and down my back listening to y'all sing. There's a fountain free. I needed that fountain. I was no box of chocolates. Maybe you were. But it, it just blesses my heart that it's free for you and me and that it can just cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness and our neediness in such a complete way. Well, children, I need one of y'all to say my little verse. You look bright-eyed this evening. You want to say it? Very good. Y'all are just really doing a good job. We are never more spiritual than we are scriptural. All right. The one I have tonight has a little bit of a big word in it, and your parents are going to help you with it. And I don't have a printer here where I'm, and I thought about printing them out and handing them out, but it's, it's pretty easy. We are free to make our choices, but we are not free from the consequences of our choices. Now, do you all know what consequences mean? You ever heard that word before? You, you got it. You, you know what it means. Consequence means the result of doing something. And so if you hit your fist against the door, it's going to hurt, right? That's the consequence of hitting the door. All right. We are free to make our choices, but we are not free from the consequences of those choices. Parents, help your children to understand that. It's something that is lifelong as they grow up and 8, 9, 10, and 12, and start making choices, they will never be able to be released from the consequences of those choices, some for good and some for bad. Well, children, are you still with me? I want you all to understand what I preach. Are you bored? I'm trying not to be. Well, tonight, I'm going to read you a chapter from 1 Kings 21, and I'm going to read it in sixth grade English. It's not that you're not over bright. I want you to understand the story. Okay? 1 Kings chapter 21, listen as I read. And the title of what I want to share with y'all tonight is, What is Your Inheritance Worth? Now, we know what inheritance is. It's what we think is owed us by someone who passes away. Now, Naboth owned a vineyard in Jezreel near, near King Ahab's palace. And one day Ahab said, Naboth, your vineyard is near my palace. Give it to me so I can turn it into a vegetable garden, and I will give you a better vineyard or pay you whatever you want for yours. Naboth answered, This vineyard has always been in my family, and I won't let you have it. So Ahab went home, and he was angry and depressed because of what Naboth had told him. 
and he laid on his bed just staring at the wall and refusing to eat. How old was he? Laid on his bed and pouted. Okay. And Jezebel, his wife, came in and said, What's wrong and why won't you eat? Well, I asked Naboth to sell me his vineyard or to let me give him a better one, Abahab replied, and he told me I couldn't have it. Well, aren't you the king of Israel, Jezebel asked. Get out of bed and eat something. Don't worry. I'll get Naboth's vineyard for you. And Jezebel wrote a letter to each of the leaders of town where Noah lived. And in the letter she said, Call everyone together and tell them to come without eating today. And when they come together, give Naboth a seat right down here, right in the front, and have two liars come and sit across from him and say and swear that Naboth cursed God and the king and then take Naboth out and stone him to death. And so she signed Ahab's name to the letters and sealed them with his seal, and then she sent them to the town leaders. And after receiving her letters, they did exactly what she asked. And they told the people that it was a day to go without eating. And then all of them came together, and they seated Naboth right down in the front, and then the two liars came in and came and sat across from Naboth and they accused him of cursing God and the king so that the people dragged Naboth outside and they stoned him to death. The leaders of Jezreel sent a message back to Jezebel and said, Naboth dead. And as soon as Jezebel got their message, she told Abraham, now you have the vineyard that Naboth refused to sell. He's dead. And Ahab got up and he went to take the vineyard. And then the Lord said to Elijah the prophet, King Ahab of Israel is in Naboth's vineyard right now. And he's taking it over. Go tell him that I say, Ahab, you murdered Naboth and took his property. And so in the very spot where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, they're going to lick up your blood. Could I have a drink of water, please? And when Elijah found him, Ahab said, So, my enemy, you found me at last. And Elijah answered, Yes, I did. Ahab, you have managed to do everything the Lord hates. Will you now be punished? You and every man and boy in your family will die, whether you're a slave or free. Your whole family is going to be wiped out, just like the families of King Jeroboam and King Basha. You've made the Lord very angry by sinning and causing the Israelites to sin. Now as for Jezebel, dogs will eat her body in Jezreel. And dogs will eat the bodies of your relatives who die in town. And buzzards will eat the bodies of those who die in the country. And when Ahab heard this, he tore his clothes and he wore sackcloth day and night. And he was depressed and refused to eat. Now sometime later the Lord said, Elijah, 
Do you see how sorry Ahab is for what he did? I won't punish his family while he's still alive. I will wait. Thank you. I will wait until his son is the king. Now, no one was more determined than Ahab to disobey the Lord. And Jezebel encouraged him. Worst of all, he worshipped idols just as the Amorites had done before the Lord forced them out of the land and gave it to Israel. So we've just read 1 Kings 21. It's the unfortunate account of the end of Naboth at the hands of Queen Jezebel. And it's probably familiar to most of us. Perhaps it's a Bible story that you remember from Sunday school or maybe from your mother reading growing up. But there's many lessons that we can learn from this tonight. And I want to bring up some possibilities, some things for you to think about. And so maybe we could think about that we could talk about covetousness. You know, the lesson that should be learned from the example of Ahab looking at Naboth's vineyard and admiring it as he sat on his porch. You know, he's sitting on his porch swing, drinking cool drinks and eating sweet cakes. He's over there watching Naboth's vineyard and he's starting to be covetous. Well, it seems to me that it's okay for him to enjoy the scenery, to observe the fruits of someone else's labor and to hop down off the porch and go over and commend Naboth on his nice crop of grapes coming on and the big clusters are ripening sweet big juicy grapes like the ones from California you know it would have been okay for him to have a neighborly visit about the weather or the price of wine on the Jerusalem board of trade or all of that would have been perfectly in order but one day Ahab's thoughts of greed and envy took root in his heart. And he felt and fed that and nourished that desire, those wrong thoughts until the time came that it wasn't good enough for him just to sit here on the porch swing and look. He decided that he needed it for himself. And he wouldn't be happy until the records in the courthouse in Jezreel said that Ahab owned that track of land, not Naboth. Well, perhaps there's another lesson that we could learn from Naboth about the consequences of a missed opportunity. You know, he wasn't on the ball when he could have got him a better farm, a better piece of dirt, more yield potential. Or maybe he would have had the opportunity to cash out, travel and take it easy, maybe build himself a second home up in the mountains or by the lake. You know, he worked hard. He earned it. And now he owed himself to enjoy it. That's quite typical of many affluent Anabaptist people today. We worked hard. We earned this. We deserve it. And so they have so much stuff. Maybe there's a lesson to be learned about the slippery slope and what peril we put our hearts and families into when we become tolerant or maybe even accepting of other of the culture and customs around us. And we get to the place where we approve of ungodly people. Where do we get our cues and our values and choices 
either in conduct or what we and who we want to identify with. Verse 25 of chapter 21 says this, There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by his wife. The Bible says that Ahab was the vilest of all Israelite kings, completely under the control and domination of his wicked pagan wife. He was unmatched in evil, both in immorality and spiritual harlotry in all of Israel. Well, I'm going to go back and read verse 4. Something we need to pick up there. So Ahab went home angry and depressed because of what Ahab had told him, and he lay on his bed, staring at the wall and refusing to eat. The lesson that I want us to learn this evening is that Naboth was a principled man, a man that was true to the spiritual teachings and customs of his forefathers. Alas, there is no honorable way to do a dishonorable thing. I told you all that. Listen to this. And Naboth answered, This vineyard has always been in my family. The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Your inheritance. What are you going to do with your inheritance? Do you think about that? And what is your inheritance? You see, there are some things that are just too sacred to sell. This is an old hickory knife. And so those of you who are into antiques or flea market or collect knives, what would you give me for it? Philip, it don't interest you? Not really. Boy, you're bidding way higher than most. Mr. Shank, you look kind of knifey. <laughs> Randall? 15? Can I take it to the flea market? Y'all have flea markets around here? You know what a flea market is? I don't flea market, but you know what I'm talking about. Would it be okay for me to take this to the flea market? Phillips says I can. Randall, this is Grandmother Vera's butcher knife. And she butchered a lot of turkeys with it and scraped a lot of hogs. You see how it's... And she gave it to my dad, and my dad gave it to me. I have 66 first cousins that would probably fight me for this. <laughs> Randall, should I take it to the flea market? No. Because now you know whose it was. It has value to you. But it don't have value... Wesley as much. It has no value to you. You don't even know my grandmother. Would you like to have this knife? You don't need it. You're not butchering turkeys anymore. Should I take it to the flea market? All right, then how about this knife? How much you give me for this one? Quiet. 
Don't want it. You don't want it? You're disrespectful. <laughs> this was my mother's knife. I watched her use it all my growing up years. And so when my mother and my dad passed and my mother passed and, and they put all their stuff out on the tables that they hadn't previously given away, my sisters were like a bunch of ravens. They went around for shiny things and glass and china. And I come along and I saw that knife and I remembered. Same knife my mother had. Two blades and three handles later. No, it's the same knife. It don't mean anything to you all. Some of y'all knew my mother. But my sisters would be right covetous now that they've already collected the glass. They probably would like this too. But it would be disrespectful to my mother to take it to the flea market. She would never know. Would she? Now this is a little side note. Uncle Howard Brubaker thinks that his mother, Reba Brubaker, could watch him preach. And he always tried to do his best. And so, uh, I don't know if my mother's watching tonight, but this was her knife. This is just a piece of glass. I don't know a lot of you named Kenneth. What's, would you like to have this bottle? It's a wine bottle. Uh, the sophisticated name is Decanter. Can I take it to the flea market? Should I? Flea market, it's okay. This bottle has served communion since the late 1800s. It started out at the bank church. It's been to West Virginia more times than you can count to Georgia, South Carolina. I use it two times a year, and it goes a lot of places. It's uh, probably a late 1800s version. My great-grandfather was the deacon at the bank church, and then my grandfather was, and then my dad, and now me. And so after four generations, should we just carry it to the P&M whatnot shop? Is that okay? Now, Philip Wanger saw it one time, and and he was about as covetous as Naboth. He thought it ought to be put on a, a shelf of idols in the bank church. John, can I take this to the flea market? Now that you know, does it need to go to the bank church? You mean like the Ark of the Covenant, the utensils inside the Ark of the Covenant. It's just a piece of glass. My great-grandfather probably paid 50 cents for it, if that much. Wesley, you're in line as well as me. Do you want it? You know now because I told you where it came from. Okay.
I spent enough time with that. There are some things that are just too sacred to carry to the flea market. Right, Randall? Okay. Naboth enjoyed growing grapes there by the king's palace. And he could see the carriages pull in and all the dignitaries from the different countries come in and as they conducted government business. Perhaps he was the recipient of the leftovers from the lawn parties and barbecues that the king hosted with other heads of state. No doubt he was on a first-name basis with King Ahab. And then in verse 2 of chapter 21, it says this, and Ahab, that he went over, and in verse 2 of chapter 21 that I just read, said that Ahab goes over, and he says, Hey, Naboth, this is a paraphrase, your vineyard is right here by my palace, and I need, or I mean, I want to grow some okra and tomatoes and lima beans and some watermelons, and I'll give you a really nice vineyard or some river bottom land for that one. Or if you choose, I'll give you a terrace track up on the side of Mount Nebo where you can gaze out at your neighbors down across the valley. And it's a great spot to watch the fireworks in Bridgewater on the 4th of July. And so I ask you this evening, what is your inheritance worth? You and I are the recipients of a spiritual heritage, the eternal life, the gift of eternal life. What is it worth to you? And are you willing to take that gift and pedal it to the flea market and walk off. It happens every day. How many of you have unsaved family members that have taken their spiritual heritage to the flea market and said, I don't need it anymore? Do you follow me? Okay. Do you realize that Ahab and his sons lost their life defending and staying true to the commitment of their ancestral land as stewards and caretakers of it. And you say, Ahab's sons? Let's go to 2 Kings 9, 25. Listen as I read. Now Jehu commanded his assistant Bidkar, get Jerome's body and throw it in the field that Naboth once owned, do you remember when you and I used to ride side by side behind Jerome's father Ahab? And it was then that the Lord swore to Ahab that he would be punished in the same field where he killed Naboth and his sons. Throw Jerome's body over there, just as the Lord said. And so, not only did uh, Ahab killed Naboth, he killed his boys too. Because his boys would be the inheritor, inher the heirs of that tract of land. And so he had to get rid of them as well. It's just that the story in 1 Kings don't mention it. But we go over into 2 Kings and we realize Jezebel took them out too. Because he had to purge all the names off of that tract of land that belonged to Naboth's clan. All right, I want to talk a little bit. I need to keep moving here. 
a little bit about inheritance in the Old Testament. Following the children of Israel's entrance into Canaan, the promised land was a gift of God for generations to come. It didn't just belong to the heat woes or the sports or the odors. It belonged to the whole tribe, children of Israel. It was God's gift to them. And it was understood in the Sinaiah Covenant that the descendants of Abraham's were not really owners, but they were just stewards. And who was the rightful owner of the land of Canaan? God. And he parceled it out. You can read about that in Numbers. So in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua are the records of how this allotment of land was made and put into effect. And so the allotment of land did not go to families and not to, it went to the families, you know, Reuben and Gad and Judah and all this. It didn't go to individuals the way that we're used to. He buys this farm and he buys this farm and she buys that block in the city. There was very strict details to how it would be allotted. And there was a purpose for that. Okay, you know that when there was a will made that the oldest son always got a double portion. Why was that? A double portion. It's because back in the day, men didn't live very long. They had to work hard and they got sick and they died. Well, let's go to the story of Ruth in the book of Ruth and just think. We don't need to turn there. And so... <clears throat> When the father died, the oldest son needed to care for his widowed mother and his siblings. And so he needed a land base to do that. And so that's why he got double. Because he was responsible to take care of mom and his siblings. And so you know how all that worked. The oldest son got double portions. The others got equal shares. So if there were no sons in the family and it was all girls, then the girls got the land. If there were no daughters, then the deceased husband, his brothers got it. But if he didn't have any brothers, then, or, or there was no uncles on the dad's side, it went to the next of kin. So usually that would be a nephew or someone like that. And so that'll help you figure out in the book of Ruth the situation there of Romeo and uh, Ruth and then Boaz's dilemma. You see, all the men in Naomi's life were no longer here, and the next of kin was probably a nephew of the deceased husband Elimelech. Boaz is not the first in line to marry or inherit the land of his aunt. There was this other guy that the Bible refers to as kinsman redeemers, probably a cousin. We don't know what his name was. We'll just call him kinsman redeemer. Well, fortunately for Boaz um, and kinsman redeemer, Aunt Naomi was too old to have children. And so Ruth then comes into the picture, and she's this nice, young, beautiful widow, uh, widow and we're just assuming things here, and and she is the one that will be the surrogate 
to bring life back into the Limelech's family to take care of the ancestral land and the siblings or those uh, Yomi and the, those that needed to be taken care of. Now, Kimsman Redeemer, Boaz comes over one day and says, Hey, cousin, do you want to buy Uncle Elimelech's farm? And he says, Sure I do. Absolutely. I'm all in. And he says, Well, you get the lady too. Oh, I'm good. And I guess he knew that it wouldn't be good to have two wives. He's probably already married. And he just, oh, I'm done. And so at that point, Boaz went to the city leaders and they sat down and had this agreement and they traded shoes and all the things. They didn't have to go to the courthouse and get all these stamps and papers. But Naboth knew this, that when Ahab's offer to him was against the law, it was sin. That's what he called it. It wasn't his to give away. It wasn't his to sell. He was the keeper of it. Now, you know that the clan of Levi was not allowed to have land. They were to be keepers of the religious property, the tabernacle, and they lived in, in cities. And the other families brought them the produce of the land that they needed to live. And we get that from Deuteronomy chapter 8 where they made their tithes, dues, and offerings and first fruits from the other tribes. All of this was done so that people would have access to the land and there wouldn't be any poverty-ridden groups there without a land base. It's very difficult to eat without land. Now, in our world today, we have a small percentage of the people who provide the food for the masses. We have that understanding. They'll grow the food and you buy it, Piggly Wiggly or Winn-Dixie or whatever your store is. Back then, if you didn't grow it, you didn't eat it pretty much, unless you were a Levite. When the daughters received property, because there was no sons, suddenly things changed for them. A daughter could only marry from her own tribe if she came with a piece of land. Why was that, Philip? So that the tribe of Judah didn't end up with all the land. You know, if, if the girls from the tribe of Benjamin all went over here and married these boys, the land went with them. And so they could marry any tribe they wanted if they came without land. But the minute they brought land with them, they could only marry in the family. The Yoders had to marry the Yoders. So that land base wouldn't shift and they become an impoverished people. Do you follow me? Okay, I want, I want you to get this. In the New Testament, it all changes. There is an inheritance. The inheritance no longer belongs to the children of Israel, but to Christ himself. He is our inheritance. He's the one that dishes it out. And so as believers in Christ, we share a sense of being God's children by adoption and not because of status, ancestry, or being descendants of the biblical Abraham. We are all inherent uh, recipients of Christ's um, blessings to us regardless of social status, last name, race, any, nothing we do 
can earn that above any other people. Romans chapter 8, verse 17, If children, then heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with Christ. And if so, be that we suffer with Him, that we may be glorified together. We're heirs. We're not owners. Galatians 3, 29, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. And so Christ's inheritance is no longer tied to a piece of real estate in the land of Canaan but the kingdom of God. And we learned that. I talked about that the other night from Matthew 5, 3 to 10 in the Sermon on the Mount. And then in Matthew chapter 25, we talk about the separation of the sheep and goats. And it says, Come, take your inheritance, which was prepared for you since the creation of the world. It's promised to all of us, but there's conditions. Will the goats get their inheritance? No, they're goats. But you don't have to stay a goat. We're all born goats, but you don't have to stay a goat. You can be over on the sheep side. Isn't that pretty neat? The inheritance of the saints is eternal life. Colossians 1.12 Giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet to be partakers of our inheritance of, of the saints in light. And so I want to read a quote to you from J.I. Packer. Justification is truly dramatic transition from the status of a condemned criminal awaiting a terrible sentence to that of an heir awaiting a fabulous inheritance. You were born a goat. You can be a sheep, a lamb. You are a condemned criminal. But you can be an heir standing and waiting for your inheritance. The choice is yours. And so what is your inheritance worth to you? And are you going to take your spiritual inheritance down to the flea market? I'm asking you. There will be consequences for those who do not take God's word and holy living seriously. 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. They chose to stay goat. Now, little baby goats are cute, but a goat's a goat. They're not going to the kingdom of heaven for tonight's purposes. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Isn't that such an inheritance that you can go from being a goat to a lamb? But are you going to take that down to the flea market and say it's worthless to me and walk away? Beware of false doctrine and bad theology. It will be not be easy to raise godly, faithful families in the perverse and twisted values of our broken and godless Western culture. It's not getting any better. It probably never was easy to raise godly families. But we live in a time where our 
leaders, our government leaders, and I'm President Trump boasts of his wicked deeds and treats women poorly and uses them as objects or toys for his own personal pleasure. And don't get me started. That's, that's another subject. President Biden split up a marriage and married a woman that wasn't his, and yet he's our leader. The Canadian Prime Minister, nice guy that he is, marches in gay pride parades and promotes lifestyles that run counter to biblical truth. In Europe, they need Jesus too. And so why am I telling you all this? I mention it because many, if not most of us, can trace our spiritual family heritage to those countries. Europe, North America, Canada. Our ancestors came here for religious freedom. And now it seems they need to send the missionaries here. Grace read me some books. I'm sure you're all familiar with them. About the Russian Mennonites written by uh, Laureen Plett. She has two first cousins that live in our community. You know, the Russian Mennonite story is so typical of God's people and the Old Testament and, and maybe mine, your people. It seems they have such a rich heritage and they're faithful in the worst of times, but spiritually lax and complacent when times are good. And Laureen Plett wrote these two books, Returning Home and Crossing the Distance. You know, the story of them leaving Poland and going down through Europe into the Ukraine, and then from the Ukraine to South America, Paraguay, and California, and the Dakotas, and a lot of them went into Canada. And again, prosperity comes, and they forget God. Prosperity comes to our families, and we're known for our fine businesses and our pies or whatever. But do they know us for our spiritual fervor? To our forefathers, the Christian faith was an experience. To our fathers, it was an inheritance. To our generation, it is a convenience. And to our children, it is a nuisance. That's not original with me, but boy, did it ever speak to my heart. Let me read it again. To our fathers, the Christian faith was an experience. To our forefathers, I'm sorry. To our fathers, it was an inheritance. To our generation, it is a convenience. And to our children, is it a nuisance. May that never be said of me and you. Jesus is all you need for salvation. That's very clear in the New Testament, especially in the book of Colossians. It's makes it very plain that Jesus is all I need. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. It's only an inheritance that's handed to you. Because Jesus is all I need, those who are serious, followers of the meek and lowly Jesus, will want to respond with lifestyles that are fitting and model our kinsman redeemer. James 2.18, you're familiar. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. 
Well, show me thy faith without my, thy works, and I will show thee my faith with my works. You can't have one without the other. Guard your faith and doctrine closely. Your children are depending on you. Hebrews 5.14 But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. And so I want to suggest that when you've trained yourself through the constant use of Scripture, Scripture, and Scripture, and more Scripture, we should have learned to distinguish between good and evil. And so like I told you the other night, the mark of spiritual maturity is not how much you know, but how much you obey. One thing that Paul mentions in the Scriptures that are profitable in his doctrine and teaching. Good doctrine is so important, it determines how we live and think and view the issues of life. And it is so crucial in our conduct towards God and others. Poor doctrine often makes excuses for sloppy living. Remember to take the whole counsel of Scripture, not just random verses to fortify your faith and practice. Don't cherry pick here and here and and obliterate that. You take the whole counsel of Scripture. Beware of the temptation to live the North American dream, the pursuit of wealth and pleasure in a life focused on self. Naboth could compromise his inheritance for a promise of better things here, but he paid for it with his life. And so I'm asking you this evening, mothers and fathers, teenagers, can future generations count on you to safeguard your spiritual inheritance and pass it down to your children and your children's children for many generations to come as the Lord delays his return? Or are they going to say, that's the generation, that Wesley there, he's the guy that took his faith to the flea market. And now he's got these children that don't know God. Wesley, well, I'm picking on you. You know it. It happens all the time. People become careless about spiritual things. I want to read you a story yet from um, Carrie Miller of Caldwell, Idaho. Life in the Thorn Patch. It was on a construction site in the late 18, 1980s where I first met Andre. He had immigrated from Romania, and as we worked, he shared the struggles of his past. His story was similar to many other believers who had escaped from communist countries in the 1970s. Andre had been part of an underground church in Romania, and he knew what it meant to choose Christ, though opposed by culture, public opinion, and a threatening government official. He had grown up listening to horror stories from church leaders just returning from the torture chambers, and he understood the reality of persecution. Attending worship services with one ear tuned to the sermon and the other tuned to the secret police had been a constant reality. To Andre, this was Christianity. It was all he had ever known. Finally, after years of meeting in secret and smuggling Bibles and hiding from the police, Andre had an opportunity to escape. And with the help of believers, he was concealed in a vehicle and taken across the border to a neighboring country. 
The situation was so dangerous that his friends had packed Andre into a tiny metal compartment and then welded it shut to avoid detection by the police. And then they drilled the tiny holes in the side of the box so he could get air. Andre arrived safely across the border. But after a while, his family was able to join him there, and together they escaped to America. I met Andre several years later, but recalling his escape and that first taste of freedom were still thrilling for him. And with bright eyes and an animated voice, he loved to tell in broken English of those first worship services, the joy of singing without fear, and the abundance of Bibles were a blessing almost too good to be true. America was a wonderful place to live. No one looked over your shoulder. Services were never interrupted, and they had more food than the family could eat. This was obviously the blessing of God. But several years passed, and at the time when I worked with Andre, he was beginning to have some second thoughts. He was having some doubts. Though he was still thankful for his liberty in this country, he made some observations that alarmed him. Andre had watched the lives of so many believers who came from Romania and was concerned about the changes they were making. He knew these people. He had observed their faith in the midst of intense persecution. He had seen them stand against a fierce and determined assault by the government authorities. He watched them shine like cities on a hill. We sent our children to schools where the teachers taught them day after day that there was no God. And Andre said, I don't remember one of them succumbing to that teaching. We knew what the atheist teachers were pounding into the children, so as soon as they arrived home, we spent time teaching them again from the Word of God. It has been a time of great spiritual warfare. The fight was intense. The battle lines were clear. The conflict was black and white. And when everyone was aware of Satan's tactics, parents recognized their own weakness and need for constant prayer and vigilance in the fight. But then everything changed. After moving to America, the Roman, Romanian believers enjoyed peace and prosperity. Dramatic change was unbelievable. No, one longer, no longer did someone watch by the door during their services, nor did they need to hide their Bibles in the attic. But Andre noticed that in this great land of freedom, these same people who had so faithfully stood under oppression were having trouble dealing with liberty. Their young people were being heavily influenced by fashions and fads of the day. Older members of church were losing their original passion for the gospel. It was becoming more difficult to interest people in regular church attendance. Prayer didn't seem quite as essential, and fasting was a thing of the past. Daily devotions with the family didn't seem as important, and some of the marriages were actually struggling. The Romanian believers had come to America with a strong work ethic, and many became prosperous. And now all the business concerns, the newfound wealth to enjoy, their zeal for the Lord had started to diminish. One day, after sharing his concerns for these persecuted but now prosperous Romanians, 
Andre made this startling statement. I have considered, he said. I'm thinking of moving my family back to Romania. Back to Romania? Now this was before the fall of Nicolae Ceausescu in the communist regime. Persecution and torture were still regular occurrences in Romania. Was it possible that Andre was considering leaving a country of ease and affluence and moving back into a setting like that? And I remember going home after these discussions and I pondered and I, is prosperity so dangerous that a man would knowingly take his family back into persecution to avoid the perils of North America? Now, I had been taught from my youth to thank God regularly for freedom and prosperity that we enjoyed. And I had learned to thank, think of America as a blessed place to live. And it was a place of spiritual and financial opportunity, a land of comfort, ease, and security. What was Andre seeing that I was failing to observe? And why was he concerned about the influence our culture might have on our children? Jesus told a parable one day about a sower who went forth to plant seeds and about the seeds that fell on the stony ground and the seed that landed by the wayside and the seed that was on the good ground. Three types of soil and each had a direct impact on the harvest. Jesus' listeners would have understood this. Hard-packed soil and shallow-top soil are not good places to raise crops. Good soil is where seeds can grow and produce a bountiful harvest. But Jesus went on to describe another place where seed landed. This time, he said nothing about the condition of the soil. He didn't say if the soil was good or if it was bad, if it was rocky or shallow. The problem with the crop wasn't the soil, but what? The thorns, you're right. I think it's safe to assume it was good soil. This soil should have been capable of producing a wonderful crop except for the thorns. And as I remembered those discussions with Andre, I believe the parable of the sower explains the difference of our perspectives. I looked at America. I saw good soil. I saw a place of complete religious freedom where a man could serve the Lord and raise a family without any hindrances. It was a great place to live. Andre saw this as well. He was aware of the amazing freedom and the opportunity, but he also saw the thorns. And he saw the effect the thorns had on his spiritual growth. And Jesus said that a man who receives seed among thorns is he who heareth the word, and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches Choke out the word and he becometh unfruitful. That is pretty descriptive of conservative Anabaptists too often. It sounds harsh, but I think it's too descriptive. Beware of the deceitfulness of riches. It chokes out the word and he becometh unfruitful. God knew man's tendency and his abomination and his admonition can be summed up in one sentence from Moses. 
Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God. And throughout history, we have struggled to maintain a focus on God during times of affluence. And it's hard to remember God when things are going well and there's something about a shift from poverty to prosperity that desensitizes and destabilizes a man. I hope this evening that when you read the story about Naboth, that you remembered that there are things that are too sacred to carry to the flea market. And it has nothing to do with butcher knives from grandma or wine jugs from great-great-grandfather. It has to do with your spiritual inheritance that you got from the blood of Christ. What are you going to do with it? You know, all of us are going to have to cross the Jordan River one day. At least we um, are anticipating that time. I cross the Canadian border pretty regular. My wife's Canadian, and I go up there to preach and one thing and another thing. And, but you know, I never feel really comfortable pulling up to immigration. It don't matter if it's the Canadian side or the American side. Those, those people are pretty cheeky. And they just seem, they got the Holy Spirit. They know what to ask you. And um, a few years ago, we were up to see my wife's father. And on the way home from Red Lake, Ontario, we stopped in at Dryden, Ontario, to visit a cousin who was there. And here a girl from our community was there and she was flying home that night and she come up to me and hey Mr. Carl would you carry my luggage home so I don't have to check it in and all right away I started to have a stroke I knew I shouldn't do it it was a girl you know and yeah I'll take it and so I drove the other four hours south from there to the border and as I was coming into Fort Francis I really was not feeling real good I didn't know what I was going to do you don't carry other people's stuff across the border. And so we pulled up to the little red light and then finally the green light and the bar went up and we pulled up and the immigration officer from Minnesota said, says, what are you bringing across from somebody else? Uh, well, my neighbor girl's flying home tonight and she asked us to bring her suitcase you what? Did you look in it? I said, no, it's a girl's suitcase. I didn't look at her stuff. You're telling me that you're bringing somebody's stuff across the border and you didn't look in it? Yes, sir. Pull over here. And he continued to reduce us to a pulp. And then he uh, took Grace and I inside and set us down with this woman immigration officer. And I could look out through the glass door and she told us how foolish we were. And you never, ever assume the responsibility of bringing somebody else's stuff with you across the border. And they started going through the car. They put on their rubber gloves and they went through her suitcase. And then they went through our suitcase. And they continued to trash the vehicle. And they're pretty good at going through stuff, but they're really bad at packing. 
and they just kind of, you know, and put the lids down. And he come in and he says, you are so silly. I remember, you know, you're just really not over bright. And I didn't really feel welcome back to my home country. Another trip later, we were there. The neighbor man that my wife grew up next door to was a trapper by trade. And Ontario had changed some of their trapping laws and some of their traps were illegal. Some of their leg hold traps, they had to have rubber in them. Or so I don't remember the deal. He knew my boys liked to trap. And so he put these traps in a box that were no longer legal in Ontario. And he wrote a note to the immigration officer that, Ernie Lee Scheid, trapper number so-and-so-and-so-and-so, is gifting these traps to so-and-so-and-so-and-so in South Carolina. I didn't feel good about that either. And so we rolled up to the border, and here was my turn, and the immigration officer comes out. So what are you bringing across that you're leaving in the States? I don't know who told him. And I said, traps? What kind of traps? Furry animal traps. Open your trunk. And so he went back there and he grabbed the box and he read it and he shook it. Shook it and it rattled. Put it in, clunk, come around. Welcome home and, and have a good day. And boy, I was just like, hallelujah. But I want to tell you, so many people in this life are trying to take stuff across the border. I don't, stuff they know don't belong on the other side, but yet it's got our heart. It's got our attention. It possesses our life. It gives us purpose and meaning. And we somehow think that when we cross the border over into heaven, we can carry it with us. I saw somebody today, I went up to, uh, Franklin and Carol's for supper and I come around. And I saw somebody building a house up there and they must not be counting on getting one in heaven because it was a big boy. It was Mas Grande. Can't take it to heaven. What is your inheritance worth? And what are you trying to take to heaven with you?